the ubiquitous way that people live in China in these sort of large apartment uh, gardens uh, and developments that have been built all around the country. <clears throat> so for yourself, what, what policy of human geography do you think is going to influence that aspect of uh, urban uh, areas, urban planning in the future? Uh, to be honest, it doesn't much change, right? Uh, the data we organize all the time. Because the data is like factories, heavy factories on the interior, they have industry. And there's all these um, urban and these high-end um, commercial areas. And that seems to be always looking up for us, at least. And it is the concern of the environment. But that is the um, or these restrictions. And that, I think, is also kind of an effect of the surveying of the land and the environment that uh, resulted from the, uh, the researchers of urban areas. Oh, well, I agree with you. I would say that I had uh, probably more requests from students in China that were studying urban planning um, probably not in the first few years, but then it, it sort of became more of a, a demand or a popular um, major pursuit for students going to the university level, essentially because of the, the uh, exponential development that was being done at that time. I would suspect that if we're going down the list here between population, economics, and uh, urban development, urban areas, uh, whatever the growth or challenges in the future, I think probably we're going to see a bit of a bump uh, in the sense that post-pandemic or still towards the end of the pandemic, uh, it, especially in your country, because it's the policy with the um, sort of the zero tolerance and the lockdowns uh, is, is definitely oh, going to, yeah, it's oh. going to affect different areas. I mean, it's going to affect certain areas of uh, population, certain urban areas. Obviously, Shanghai is a nightmare right now. Um, in many oh, ways. Is he there? What's that? That is in Shanghai because oh. he's exchange company oh. and he's been trapped there for a month. Oh man, dude, I can't believe it. Uh, he sleeps in our movie room every day and there's basically five or six of his colleagues and they're all sleeping in the mess. Oh, it sounds horrid, man. It just, I talked to a few of uh, my other contacts, uh, foreign and, and local, and some of the stuff that they sent me was just unbelievable. Um, it's starting to leak out now. The, the, the biggest challenge for this, I think, is conceptually, I think for Westerners, they're going to be very dismissive of whatever happens in this case. Um, again, because of the, the sort of blaming China in this aspect for something that actually is no one to blame. It's a part of the, the process of this planet. But China is the one that, that sort of it originates this concept. And so when I talk to other people and ask people about, you know, or even show them the evidence of what's happening, um, they're nonplus. They, they, there's no concern for them. Be, they're more worried about what's happening here in the sense that things have kind of opened up and so pe things have gone back to normal. And so in typical kind of selfish Western fashion, uh, fashion, um, yeah, well, fashion, we just focus on that. It's actually more serious than it was back in 2021. Sure. But it seems like we're not more serious about that because I people are all, all going around in my city, even though there's like just 20 cases every day. And 
Well, I think it, I think it depends on which area and which region, right? Yeah, it looks like it's raining. Or so it's typical Chinese city. It's very it's very unclear. Um, yeah, but this is the typical Chinese country, and actually, we sent out our what floor are you on? And uh, but there's only one path, one path out. Through that path, you can and go around as you please. But the other sides are all backed up to control the traffic. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what floor are you on? Okay, I used to be on the twenty in Weichang, and so I, when you showed me the picture out your window, I was like, that almost looks about the same height. I would say, but I figured it was probably within the range there. All right, the Ethiopian Special Brigade Colonel is going to give us some uh, aspects of urban geography policy affecting something like uh, the distribution of power. The distribution of power. Well, I always find this a very abstract idea because how is this is something that we can distribute everywhere. It's not even like wealth. I think that normally that the power is concentrated on the on the wealthy because when you have money, you have power, right? And something going on with um, it seems like uh, great. Especially the uh, in the right? And so it makes uh, the U.S. poor I think that's how the distribution of power works. Uh, would you repeat the last part there? Because it kind of cut out, and so and your microphone's off and your camera's off. But um, yeah, just give me the last last sort of idea there you had about the distribution of power. You said something oh, happens. Oh, so, uh, I said that when you when when you're poor. And also, when you're if you're distributed, as you, you don't have any opportunity to speak out, mm. uh, voice your opinion. No one will listen to you. Maybe mm. that you can sort of express yourself with the media, but then again, you don't really care about what you feel. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if you're poor and all like that, you can't have too much power. Uh, yeah, and I would say a lot of other scholars uh, would probably agree with you from like, you know, Chomsky to Howard Zinn to uh, Zizek and many other other people as well. So you're, you're astute in that, that sort of equation, I think, in this case. Um, the only other thing I probably would, would, would want to ask you about that idea of the distribution of power is, do you think that, that, that technology is sort of changing that? In the globalized sort of world for for digital natives like yourself. Um, well, there is some use of social media can uh, help people with their experience. Um, where things like gender equality, racial equality, the overthrowing dictatorships, and uh, I, I I actually did research on that. That was my last. Uh, Last half year of my career, and so I think that we uh, there's a whole lot of and I I I think 
Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, I, I, I do think it, it seems to be it seems to be chipping away at some of the status quo in different places and different areas. I mean, probably all through this list, but these things are all in flux because of what's been happening, one, pandemic-wise, and also technology is always sort of, uh, especially disruptive technology is always changing this equation here. The only thing we didn't touch on this part about human geography is the aspect of culture, dealing with language, religion, popular music, and so forth. And so that's something that I've always leaned on in, in any lesson, whether it's for IELTS, TOEFL, SAT, and so on, is it's not just about the language, it's sort of the culture that programs our way of thinking. Um, human geography itself related to culture, what comments would you make? Um, yeah, so it's, it's all of these ideas that are the hurts. So the hurts with the um, culture, the language, and the religion along. Oh, the, co the cultural hurts? You mean the, the sort of the early yes, ones, right? Yes, the cultural hurts. And how many but were there? Also, uh, how many? I don't know. Didn't they cite four, I believe? We'd have to take a look at the, the, the text again. Oh, you mean the civilization hurts? Uh, yeah, the primaries, the, the, the ones that have, that we still, we're actually still feeling the echoes from those hurts. That's the key aspect of it. Yeah. The second thing is that when you already have a well-established system, the culture and religion and language, that also forms a formal region, is what we call in human geography. Correct. All right, good. All good comments and good understanding of all these aspects. So I appreciate that. Um, taking a look at this, this is very typical whenever I fly back into my country, especially uh, into places like Pastoral, Oregon, or um, if there's enough water in some places in California. And so the image here, of course, is a, a bunch of uh, farm fields. And so what characteristics would a human geography notice versus a physical geographer? Well, I, I'm first of all going to um, comment on the physical geography. So the physical geographer will take its positions and what advantages and disadvantages of this, and how are these organized? Like, for example, which is used for pasture lot, which is used for the growing of crops, and a human geographer may think of how this will actually um, influence. The, the, the uh, people living, living here and their main exports and, uh, from this, like their farming goods or their main uh, economy, mm -hmm. like that. Okay. But it's also very typical of when I uh, ride on a high speed train. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. When I took the trip to. Uh, basically from the south to the north on the, on, on the slow train one time and then on the high-speed train another time. Uh, I was amazed by, by how much agriculture there actually was uh, in your country, especially when you get into like the what would technically we would call a farm belt um, near the Yellow River and so forth. And so it just, it just went on for, you know, hours and hours and hours of, of rice turning into wheat and beyond that and so forth. And still it's not enough. You still got to import food. Um, so... That's yeah. the nature of the, of the aspect. The other thing they might look at this is, is considering uh, history here, uh, was anybody displaced in this development of uh, agriculture? There might have been some native or indigenous people here at one time uh, that were told to fuck off. Uh, this is ours now. Um, so unfortunately, that happens sometimes. 
take a look at this uh, beautiful sort of matrixy looking uh, city uh, by the bay or by the uh, ocean or an estuary here. And so again, human geographer comments and physical geography comments. Human geographer. Um, urban planning, patterns of a city, uh, which houses are used for what, what can be done, uh, and also these are the environment. Well, obviously, environment is very good. Just the geographer. Hmm. What advantages does the city have really in this place? Did, uh, what does it mainly produce? Main industry, wealth distribution, and what cost people to go, what cost people to go to the city here? I actually think this is the other Vancouver. And the more that I look at it and, and see uh, there's Stanley Park and the only thing I don't see is, is the Science Museum and, and that might be out of frame, but the blue roofs there are another indication um, of it being Vancouver in a couple of places, um, Stanley Park and so forth. The, yeah, I mean, I can see the, the beach there actually where I got married, so that's kind of funny. Uh, so, okay, what about the other side of this then? Hmm? Well, we got human human geography and you name some points in physical geography, right? Ah. Okay. So, um, when I see this, uh, probably I'm not looking so much at the physical geography um, because of the fact that it's a concentration of population. And so I'm probably going to be more interested in, in sort of the, the things that are occurring in the human side of, of the wealth uh, distribution, economics, and so forth. The physical geography here, I mean, it's interesting because we've got uh, some key pieces here. We have a very sort of a concentrated, uh, dense downtown area, and then it's fenced, of course, by or uh, adjacent to uh, a beautiful waterway, estuary, and mountain, and so forth. That's one of the benefits of Vancouver North is that you can be at the ocean in a few minutes or you can be up on the mountain skiing and not too long either. So, uh, human geography, so you can just read the card or just answer the question of what is human geography? How people make places, how we organize space and society, how we interact with each other in places and across time, how we make sense of others and ourselves in our locality, region, and all right and so do you think that um do you think that your culture and my culture we organize space in the same way um well, well i don't i don't really know about how you how you um organize space but um i think i've already uh mentioned all of this uh mentioned this it's basically the the common way is city center, uh, heavy industry, and then uh, wilderland, and then agriculture. But mm -hmm. there isn't much of wilderland. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, I think I think I think that general principle is is pretty universal when it comes to organizing space for urban areas that way. My commentary is is related to my own personal experience coming from this culture and then going into your culture. And, and noticing how the, the, the organization of space, whether it's urban planning, whether it is within a, a building itself, a room, is very different. There is a, there is a, a different perspective on spatial uh, organization, even down to the, the personal level. Um, and that's something that I have to elaborate on uh, later in length. 
Um, what about these, this interaction? Uh, what have been some of the fundamental changes in this interaction of people in other places and across time? Well, um, well now we obviously communicate with um, digital devices. And across time, even though we can always look back using historical records, well, and if we have that the media time, we have to use the God Emperor's writing set by Slack. Well, I am talking to the future. You are 15 hours ahead of me. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I didn't expect that. But it's totally arbitrary, right? Because we said the, uh, uh, the boundary markers. So Einstein also said that there isn't something absolute. There isn't absolute high. So maybe to another observer, being on a guild highliner, you're actually 15 hours ahead of me. So, is this how we make sense of others, ourselves, in our locality, region, and world? And so, how would you how would you describe this idea of locality, region, and world? Well, locality is basically smaller than a region, smaller than a world. Mm -hmm. So, so locality is basically something that you define of your vicinity, the the uh, thing around where you live that you are most familiar. with. Mm -hmm. And region could range between anything of a um, uh, political region. Mm -hmm. So, how you actually divide politics and things like mm -hmm. that. And it could be something like a formal region, mm -hmm. a sort of culture and religion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess that was the thing that always shocked me is the fact that, that most people didn't understand how to navigate their, their locality or even their region um, easily or sort of naturally. Um, I guess for me, again, it's because of the language barrier, being a foreigner, a Weigerin, uh, I sort of have to know the orientation because I, I have to be dependent on myself to, to get through. Let's talk about the five things. Well, I always find it practical and very handy in yeah. this when you're navigating around. A bicycle, you said? Yeah, a bicycle. I agree. I agree. Uh, I think anything like on foot, bicycle, uh, maybe even a scooter, something that gives you sort of you know a, a wider peripheral view than being in a car or a vehicle and also moving a bit slower so you can process um, yeah. the, the new locale um, i think it also isn't very good because it, it's all about mobility you don't have much mobility on so i've experienced this from here to walk to uh another uh, another neighborhood near me and that it takes to something like uh, 30 minutes on foot and then by bicycle do 10 minutes <laughs> so it's always since that i've always thought about the uh mobility on the bicycle but also on a uh an electric uh bicycle or motorcycle or a motorcycle well i said i said a scooter because that's what we use in thailand oh, yeah. or, or a light motorcycle for sure no, it's just a different experience because you have a you have a wider perspective because you're wearing a helmet or you know you're you're just not covered around uh, and so you pick up other uh, pieces of of geographic uh, information or landmark that you might not observe if you're flying by in a car. Uh, again, it's always amazing to me that that people sort of don't grab onto those details and they get lost quite easily. 
Now, you're against walking as mobility, but I'm looking at the picture of your, your Ethiopian Special Brigade. It looks like they're walking. They could probably walk 30 minutes. They probably have to do a lot of walking. That's one of the things you actually do on, on long-range patrol, and you actually do a lot of walking because that's the only choice you have. But, but actually, uh, if you have some tents, so that, but these tents aren't going to be very useful because they're going to be in mountains. So we, we aren't going to use these tents very easily. Okay. They really basically, they type them over against mountain infantry. Yeah, well, the other aspect of it is the fact that the logistics again. How did you get your tanks into Ethiopia? Um, the Ethiopian government supplied us with sub tanks, and these tanks they got from the Russians something like five years ago. Oh, okay. So the the T one eighties. All right. Let's let's go through um, the five things here. We we already touched pretty much on, on most of this location, place, human environment, interaction, movement, and region. Let's address, the, the, I'm more concerned about the, the, the middle ones there. You've already gave me an answer for region, place, and location. Let's talk about human environment interaction and then uh, couple that with movement. Are you, are you circling the maps, your favorite map of Africa? <laughs> and Greenland, and Greenland. And Greenland. Because the Greenland is not so important. I took the Greenland and Africa because that's what you always have to point out to you. I have a special reason for that, you know, uh, you know, great Captain Galloway uh, was in Greenland uh, working the dew line in, during the Cold War and uh, the conflict. And so we had uh, B-52 bombers that were stationed there and one push of the button, they'd fly over the pole and they would say, hello, Mr. Khrushchev, um, this is Dr. Strangelove. And so it was such a big top secret thing for a long time. And and in living in Greenland at that time was like watching the thing, you know. My father said that basically they had to like use use a rope to go from, you know, barracks to barracks to barracks because it's complete whiteout. You know, I can't imagine how they would even fly. So it, it seemed like kind of a strange mission or a strange place to, to, to so, try to launch from. Yes. So you were in Greenland in the 1960s. Not, not myself, my father, my father. Oh. The other, the other captain. Um, okay, so uh, human environment interaction. Give me a comment on something that would, would lack that, latch, latch that into what we're talking about. So, well, when I think of this, uh, uh, I'm always reminded to the IELTS questions about how humans and environment um, can they live in harmony with each other? And so, in a, in a capitalist uh, regime, I, I, I'm using the word capitalist very loosely to sure. simplify oh, no, I understand. Um, a profit. But for most companies are after. Sure. They're after profit. So, if they're into the natural resources industry, like uh, oil, jewelry, uh, mining for minerals, they are. Um, they're also in common with the environment. Sure. Because the environment can only get that much. Mm -hmm. But they want more. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some strategies out there. So, for example, in the market industry, you can cut down the future for less of other growth or tons of nutrients. And that's a, a, a nuclear restriction of the region's environment. And that also limits the damage to the environment. And that's the damage to ourselves. Um, that's true. When I got to Oregon, um, some of the larger uh, paper mills, logging companies, whatever else, 
definitely we're, we're looking for some sort of sustainable growth model to protect their industry. I mean, obviously the uh, logging industry fell off uh, towards the towards the latter part of the century, and you know, just kind of like on life support system, even though you know, lumber was in high demand while building and so forth, it, it's still not still not as cheap as it can be can be brought in from other sources or um, sort of stretched out as a product, you know, coming from your country uh, as a type of, you know, fiberboard. It's, you know, probably has cardboard and all kinds of other stuff. And it's just, it's amazing to me, like, how it all come, comes together. Uh, movement. Why is that important for us as well? We care about movement because we talk about movement every day. It's our mode of transportation and moving around. Um, and that's basically the most important but also it's loosely connected to the environment because uh, obviously we know that uh, we're not serving low carbon uh, travel, that's low carbon movement around. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd also say that probably within the, the text itself, you're going to see things like uh, talking about movement as far as diaspora and human uh, migration, those kind of things as well are come up in, in several different places in the text. And it always amazes me that the largest human migration used to happen every year at Spring Festival oh, yeah, in Guangzhou, except obviously during the, the pandemic, things have, have changed. And so and maybe it's getting to the point where it won't be as intense as it ever was. I don't think things will ever kind of go back to the same. Uh, location is as absolute relative location. Location tells you where it is. And so we always go back to uh, Robert Anton Wilson and his concept of uh, the map is not the territory. And so even if we look at the location on the map, doesn't actually mean that's the real location. Um, so some of that has to do with cartography, some of that has to do with perception and um, other things. When we, when we get a map and we put it anywhere, always, you can always find one point, and that point corresponds directly to the point on the map, and the point on the earth. Hmm. Okay. So, what's which would would you classify that as absolute location or relative location? Absolute location, because we're dealing with longitude, uh, the latitude grids like that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Interesting. And so, when we get to relative location, what are we referring to? The position of near something is in relation to something else. So you're always telling me about how you're in Guangzhou. And you ask people where some uh, where something is, and they always tell you, "Oh, it's next to the twenty-story building." Uh, th that was probably about ten years ago. I, I think it's kind of changed, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with yeah, there are much more twenty uh, twenty-story buildings. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that one that he was referring to because it was it was near the uh, Garden Hotel, which used to be the embassy, used to be nearby there. Or the white swan, all this stuff like that, and and one of the reasons why they referred to it because it was probably one of the first tall buildings in the area, and so that's why I got that name. Place describes the human and physical characteristics of a location, including um, this lovely picture of Machu Picchu Picchu in Peru. Machu um, Picchu, yeah, which is uh, probably on my bucket list. I probably should just go there tomorrow. I should get on a plane and go. Um, the altitude would probably get me. I, I had a little bit of altitude sickness when I went to what did you say? My favorite place, Yunnan. Um, I didn't notice it. Didn't notice it. But there's a, there's a medicine that you can take. We also actually use it for uh, hypertrophic training as well because it, it allows you to sort of uh, respirate in a way that's more efficient. 
and then basically it's uh, kind of like a drabamine for your lungs, though, instead of getting seasick, it's to, to prevent altitude sickness. And so it's also useful for training. One of my, one of my um, soldiers, one of my soldiers, code scripts. It's not conscious. They're all volunteer mercenaries. He knew someone. No, no one volunteer. That's, that's an oxymoron. You cannot say volunteer mercenary. A mercenary, you have to get paid to be determined as a mercenary. If you're volunteering, you're not a mercenary. Oh, 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 all right, all right, but they get out of their own will. So anyway, one of my friends, he knew someone who was, uh, was, was a, uh, in Peru. Uh, he spent a vacation there uh, after going to Colombia to start with the drug cartels. Hmm, interesting. Um, I, I think the thing is, the, the Peruvians... They feel a bit. They feel a bit put off by the fact that that Western most of the other parts of Western culture say, "Well, aliens built this, or they they couldn't have built it with the technology they had." You know, it's like we give the Egyptians a pass, but even still, people look at Egyptians and think, "Oh, yeah, aliens built pyramids or something." It's really hard sometimes, I think, for Westerners to conceptualize uh, what can be done uh, with, with primitive uh, tools, but. With a huge bunch of, of you know hardcore human labor, the fact that they brought all this stuff well, up to the top of the mountain is the thing that, that gets people going. Yes. Uh, I think that they should substitute aliens for aliens. For what? I X I A N S. Okay, you got me on that one. Explain. So, so the uh. uh the guys in Duke, they make these um, forbidden uh, um, uh, machines for the God Emperor. Ah, okay. So this might be a pronunciation issue. Okay. I'll take a look at the word. Now I know what you're referring to, um, but I don't know what the pronunciation is either. But I don't recognize your version of it, so I'll double check. But I, I know what you're referring to. Yep, yeah, it could be. Um, you know. Again, if it was your culture, it'd be like... Can you imagine people coming to China and saying, oh, aliens must have built the Great Wall, and the Chinese, they couldn't have done it. People would be mad. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course we built it. It's part of our heritage. And so it's, it's a very sort of, uh, I don't want to say non-PC or inappropriate. It's just it's just typical sort of uh, colonizer, imperialistic, you know, determination that, you know, only, only sort of the noblesse oblige in the world were able to do anything. Uh, going into place here, we've got the, the specific human uh, physical characteristics of a location. Then we have this idea of site versus situation. So so give me the the comment there between site versus situation, if you don't mind. Site includes the characteristics of the immediate location. It's exact location. Situation refers to the locations of a place relative to its surroundings and other places. Oh, so it's the difference between the shopping mall and the shopping mall next to the 20-floor building. Mm. Well, you know, it all becomes sort of slightly uh, relative to me because I start turning it into a subject idea of if the three-dimensionality of, of this concept and then it, it all falls apart. Uh, sense of place, perception of That's probably what it is, is I don't have a really good sense of place anymore. As a ghost in the machine, I don't really have, you know, I'm not necessarily my sense of place is not here in the United States my sense of place is definitely not in China because I'm not Chinese I can't be in Thailand because I'm not Thai and so I guess I'm just floating in the ether all right 
So it's the way that we perceive place. And so how do we do that? How do we perceive a sense of place? How do we perceive a sense of place? <laughs> so, well, that's a bit complicated because you're asking me, how do we think of, how do we think of ourselves thinking of a place? Well, it's a sense of place, right? And so, and so I know this becomes very abstract in the sense that, um, you know, does the observer influence what it's perceiving, or is the perception influencing the observer? Well, of course, because it's how we perceive a place. Like, in addition, think a place is not. These are real experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you could could you have a sense of place of, of where I am, even though you've seen photos, you know what America is, and so forth. So how accurate would your sense of place be for where I'm at? Well, well, I I would have a good hunch, but I won't say it will be very accurate because the photos you see of place aren't what these places are really like. Sure, sure. I'm just again I'm telling you from my own experience that no matter what, I, how much information I onboarded, research, media, movies, whatever else. Nothing prepared me for the sense of place when I got to China. Uh, within my neighborhood, within the university, within the cities, within traveling, uh, wherever I went, the sense of so what did you expect? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I definitely probably expected more uh, like what I would see in Hong Kong because that's most of the information that I had, and so very sort of very sort of uh, chaotic and uh, high-tech simultaneously. Uh, what I didn't realize was it was actually closer to, to my experiences in Mexico and uh, other Latin American countries where, where you have a tremendous amount of uh, resources and wealth concentrated in an area to make things look really opulent and everything else beyond, everything else beyond that is, is extremely poor. And so it was huge gaps. And I mean, you'd be going down like a beautiful, perfect highway, and then all of a sudden it would be a dirt road, and then there would be a new highway again. And so, because of all the little, you know, the different uh, fiefdoms. There sometimes isn't even a part of transition. You would expect the city center, the suburbs, the poor suburbs, and the slums. Um, we, we don't have uh, things about the extreme slums, of course. But yeah. You have even in the cities. But what you usually get, even in the bright city center, when you go 50 minutes down the lane, and then in a small lane, you suddenly find yourself in a, in a very dilapidated neighborhood. Sure. <laughs> which is always very good, which doesn't even feel very serious for me because I'm so used to it by now. Uh, you know, well, obviously, I never worried about my safety in that in that aspect compared to you, but obviously, you know, because of my size and then being a foreigner and whatnot, and my experience is pretty good. Probably, predominantly the size, but also, you know, being vigilant. I mean, I'm not walking around, you know, with my money hanging out and you know all my value. You know, obviously, I'm in the city environment. You don't want to be tempted. But but discovering those those little places were always important to me because they were always like other little worlds or other little nodes. Because you couldn't see them off the main highway. You'd go by the fancy buildings or whatever else, but as you said, you go down one little alley or hutong, you're in a totally different place. And to me, that was the, that more accurate sense of China. That was my sense of place, you know, where people were making buildings well, and everything else. So, first, I've, I've actually strangely never worried about my safety 
anywhere in the city. It's maybe because I'm already very familiar with the place and also because I have a high confidence in our nation security. It is. It is actually. It's actually really safe. That's the thing I always tell people when they ask me about it. I said, "No, it's extremely safe." Um, I mean, the, the high, the data that the highest. The only thing that is, the only thing that is very dangerous is the dogs. Well, but you also have a fear of dogs, and so dogs can sense that fear, and, and they know you're a target because they can smell it on you. You know, at, at eight hundred feet, because their smell is eight hundred times stronger than a human's. And they can sense your your apprehension, your energy, and your fear, uh, and so you haven't turned into an alpha. And that's the, the the situation for most Chinese boys because they've been somewhat infantilized by their family situation as being the only child. And so there's a, despite your advancements in academia, academia, there's going to be some arrested development in other areas. And the fact that that you're higher on the food chain than the dog, you have to keep that in mind. And so if he tries to bite you, you should bite him back. Kick his ass uh, because it's just a dog. Um, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it's. Well, I can ride. Trust me, it's happened to me many. Thailand's worse than China for dogs because the they they don't put dogs down there. I mean, at least in China, uh, obviously they've got a precarious situation with dogs, especially in certain certain urban area uh, environments because they have the dog meat festival. And sometimes people kidnap dogs because it's you know cheap meat or whatever else. But in Thailand, because of the Buddhism, you know, dogs might be reincarnated relatives. And so you're riding your scooter, your bicycle, whatever else, and you know a soy dog will come up, and, and they are very intimidating sometimes, and they look monstrous. And so um, I would hope that somewhere on your bucket list you get over your fear of dogs, um, because it's going to be something that's that's going to cause you some difficulty later on. Um, so about emotional connections to particular. I'm talking about about my perception of America, of your typical American city. Let's say Vancouver, and you tell me where I'm wrong. So I really think of it as a very as a greener place than China. You have more parks, and mostly apartments, and you see those story buildings, and these are uh, often. Very new, and um, uh, wealthy people live there in the suburbs. But then we also have these slums. Um, so I see pictures of the slums in the east side of Chicago. So it really puts a mess. And we, we, well, you're, you're mostly right, I would say, aside from the slummy part. We actually don't, in this side of the, of, uh, the Columbia River, they don't really have a proper slum area. We do have an area that's low income and does have a lot of crime and drugs and so forth, but it's really concentrated. Oh, that's, that's what I mean. I, that's really concentrated. I to, no. You go, go. I used to, I used to, I used to work yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you say slum, of course, I think of like, you know, the slums of, uh, you know, Brazil or like Rio de Janeiro or the slums oh, of, of the Philippines, right? Different. Yeah, no, you're just talking, you're just talking about a, a bad area and so forth. Yeah. Um, it's actually it's it's pretty nice in Portland uh, across the river. It's it's pretty bad. There's some pretty rough areas there as well, especially since the pandemic, and we still have a huge amount of homeless people uh, on that side over there. We have some here, but it's not as much. And and one of the challenges I think for that aspect here in, in Clark County is that 
you know, 75% of the Portland Police Department live here across the river because it's nice. So it's like, you know, cop city. Um, and so things tend to be sort of special because of that aspect. When you have that many law enforcement sort of concentrated in an area, that, that does cause uh, peripheral effects with human interaction uh, within your urban area. Uh, it's no different than like uh, some of the the military sort of housing uh, that sometimes comes up in China, where you know basically everybody that works for the for the military sort of lives in the same garden. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. very special. Yeah, special that and so so like foreigners can't be there or anything else like that. It's just kind of one of those things. Uh, infusing a place with meaning. Um, we're almost out of time, so a uh, place inspires no strong emotional ties to its people. It has placelessness. Um, placelessness, yeah. I think after after traveling around China for aisles and looking at a lot of, of second tier and third tier cities, to me there was placelessness because it was very homogenized. It was literally the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and so, it didn't have very similar to all the things over the world in each country, except for these famous um, travel destinations. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's, it's, I mean, again, I think that is part of the, the thing that you mentioned earlier about, it's not so much capitalism, but it's about consumerism. And, and so... Globalization. Yeah, globalization and consumerism. And so, you know, what, what, what sells and works in one area will sell and work in another area, and so that just sort of keeps replicating itself. Um, and that's very common, for sure. And so you got to get off the beaten path to, to, to avoid that. And so that's perception of place for me, is the belief or understanding of what a place is like based on books, movies, television, stories, and photographs. Uh, again, you can, never, you can never upload enough information to experience it until you're there. Um, that's always the biggest challenge for all of us. All right, this is a huge lesson. This will carry us through, I think, until the end for discussion components, which is great. Um, somewhere here, I've got some controls. I'm actually, I'm actually upstairs now for a change, and so I've got to get used to the new equipment. Uh, it's not really new equipment; it's just different equipment. All right. Uh, any final comments or anything else that you want to add to uh, the, the discussion or the com? Uh, the, Concepts. Um, what are the stumps like the filters? Because I never saw it in the Um, let's see. Normally, I would go from from Hong Kong to Clark, which used to be the old air base, also where Captain Galloway spent time. Um, and so then then I took a car from Clark to Manila, and we went through the slums. And and again, it was just something that might be might be a little bit of like Mumbai. In the sense that it's high concentration of like of, of like little pockets of, of people trying to live, you know, on top of each other and so forth, and in sort of ramshackled um, things that they built together out of tin and so on. So like they might, huh? Safety. Say it again. Safety. Oh, the safety. Safety. Uh, again, it's it's hard for me to to judge an area whether it's safe or not because I've, I've been in some pretty hostile places and didn't have any problems and, and so for me well size well it's not just the size i mean i'm not very fast or anything like that again it's just being um your head on a swivel and being aware of your surroundings and and also trying to uh, be a good guest 
to be a good, you know, sort of passerby, not getting involved in certain situations and so on. I mean, I always take a sort of an, uh, an observer point of view as much as possible, uh, unless it's an emergency, then I might have to intervene. But the slums in, in the Philippines, of course, they're they're not much bigger than you. <laughs> That's the truth of it. They're, they're, they're fairly small in stature. Now, I'm not saying that, that they're not uh, dangerous. I mean, there are some Filipino martial arts that are, you know, pretty intense. Um, you know, and again, it's one of those situations where they would get you in a rush. You know, it wouldn't be a one-on-one. There would be multiple people getting on you uh, or, uh, or stabbing you. But only one seriously when I was on a big bus, as I would like to call it, from Barcelona Marina to a port on my way to an island. So there always seems to not be any concentration of a slum, but it's more like there's one, one or two families just the side of the road, and then you go 100 meters, there's another one or two families at the side of the road. To yeah. me, that's always very strange. I mean, what do we keep up to put together? Um, could be multiple reasons, you know, uh, could be pride. I mean, they're very, they're very prideful, um, in the sense that they believe that they're sort of in charge of their own sort of life and their situation. And simultaneously they are, uh, you know, they're Catholics. Um, and so they have the, the colonizer mentality of, of, of Catholicism that's sort of superimposed onto their own sort of natural way and order of doing things. And so there's a lot of distortions in that aspect. And also some uh, dialectics in the sense that uh, on one hand, they're very prideful and proud of who they are as Filipinos and their language and so forth. And then simultaneously accepting the dogma and the doctrine that was given to them, you know, during colonization and not letting go of it. Uh, I think it's different for younger people now, obviously because uh, people are having a better understanding of, of the effects of history and so forth, having more information and education in order to make decisions for themselves about what sort of uh, consciousness or relationship that they want to to build within their their network or their locale or their society or whatever else. If you, if you really want to have also in your safety, make sure that you bring a something Idaho Dola with you. <laughs> We awaken from this memory. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that is the, is the concept. I was waiting waiting for the punchline, and that was quite a surprise. Um, so why did you pick that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, out of all the things you could have said. Because, because he was Duncan Idaho. All right. Duncan Idaho it is. Let's leave it at that. Uh, if there's no other comments, I guess we'll try to see you. Uh, are we still doing Friday or Saturday, technically? I don't know, because half the time I don't know. You have to ask my Well, I'll just go by the schedule. Whatever's on the schedule, if it's still there. But I think we're at the end of the month, so I think this might be the last one. So I'll, I'll double check. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Good luck. Uh, whatever it is going to happen, if I see